Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg, and I'm a children's book author. And I'm Eve Yohalem. I'm also a children's book author. Now, usually on Book Dreams, we use books as a way to explore topics that fascinate us. But this week is different because this right here is our 100th episode of Book Dreams. Unbelievable. Starting way back in March of 2020, when we shared our thoughts and fears and hopes about what we were reading and not reading during the earliest days of COVID lockdown to our very first guest interview. Thank you, Jim Mustick. Yes. Thank you, Jim. We've talked about everything from what's bibliotherapy and how can we get some to feral cows in Scotland to the truth about the gospel of Jesus's wife. We couldn't have done it without all of you, our wonderful listeners. It just wouldn't have been possible. Thank you so much for listening. And we couldn't have done it without our phenomenal producer, Gianfranco Lentini, who's been with us from the very start and has shared all of our highs and lows and in-betweens. He remembers all the things we forget, including the things we don't even think about in the first place, and he knows how to do all the things we're clueless about. Thank you so much, Gianfranco. Yeah, or maybe thank God for Gianfranco is more, more yeah, like that it. too. That too, right? Yes. Hosting Book Dreams has been among the greatest joys of our lives. Julie and I marvel at how lucky we are to get to talk to so many interesting, passionate people and to read their incredible books. So in celebration and as a gift to you, dear listeners, and let's be honest, as a gift to ourselves, we went back to our guests and asked them this question. What's one book you love and why do you love it? And oh, the answers we received. Just sit back and relax because we've got your reading list mapped out for you for at least the next year. And don't worry about writing anything down because we've listed all the guests and the books that they love in our show notes. Yeah, right now, all you need to do is enjoy. So let's start with Marlon James, author of Moonwitch Spider King, among several other extraordinary novels. We asked Marlon to tell us one book he loves during our interview with him. And as always happens to Julie and me whenever we're asked this question, at first his mind drew a total blank, but not for long. Take a listen. My mind went blank and then books start to empty the service. And I go, should I talk about that one? Yeah. So the book that empty the service for me is Richard Powers' is The Time of Our Singing. That was a novel with some super flawed characters. It's an interracial marriage. The, um, a black woman, a white man meet, they fall in love, and they start a family. And... They try, they try so hard to make it work. And you root for everybody in that book, including the people you don't like. You just root for them. And you really want them to do well. And there are times I'm crying. God, God if you guys were just in another country, you should have come to Jamaica. You should have whatever. <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, I felt for those characters. Mm. It was the last novel that made me cry. And it's a sensational book, The Time of Our Singing. And he gets it. I think I was very surprised how much he got what it is being, you know, a mixed race family. And he, he just did it. It was so well done. When it comes to book recommendations, Nancy Pearl and Jeff Schwager are absolute pros. They wrote a book called The Writer's Library, The Authors You Love on the Books That Changed Their Lives. Here are Nancy and Jeff talking about books they love. 
During these pandemic years, I've mainly been reading and rereading and re-rereading comfort books, old favorite novels that I know will entertain me and, most importantly, take me out of the present into the world that the authors created. One of my all-time favorites, a novel that I must have read a dozen times already and because it's a wonderful audio book as well, listened to again and again and again, is Georgette Heyer's novel, The Grand Sophie. Most of the Hayer readers that I've met were introduced to the author's books by their mothers or grandmothers when they were teenagers, but I didn't discover her until I was in my 40s, and I'm so glad I did. Hayer's novels are in general set during the Regency period in Britain, roughly 1811 to 1820, and all feature high-spirited and well-born young women. During the time that Sophie, the eponymous heroine of the Grand Sophie, is staying with her aunt and uncle's family in London, she makes it her business to improve the lives of everyone in the family, whether they want their lives improved upon or not. It's a pure delight. When I first read it, I talked about it so much that is an end-of-the-quarter present, my library school students at the University of Washington photoshopped my picture onto the cover of an old edition of the Grand Sophie a photo I treasure. My favorite book from the moment I first read it more than 30 years ago has been Dennis Johnson's Jesus's Son, a collection of short stories that combine to make up a novel of just 160 pages. Jesus's Son follows the adventures of a young drug addict and the people he crosses paths with in the early 1970s. It's a book teeming with life lived on the razor's edge between life and death in a language as kinetic as the lyrics of Bob Dylan or the Lou Reed song that inspired its title, the all-too-appropriate Velvet Underground classic, Heroin. That language, an epic rock and roll song that takes place on Johnson's own version of Desolation Row in his own jungle land, is what sets Jesus' son apart from any other book I've ever read. It's also at times laugh-out-loud funny, and at other times heartbreakingly poignant. Rather than going on about why I love it, I'd like to share a few sentences from the story Emergency, which is the book's centerpiece. The road we were lost on cut straight through the middle of the world. It was still daytime, but the sun had no more power than an ornament or a sponge. That world, these days, it's all been erased, and they've rolled it up like a scroll and put it away somewhere. Yes, I can touch it with my fingers. But where is it? That world is in Jesus' Son by Dennis Johnson, my favorite book. Laura Chuhan Campbell is a leading Merlin scholar, so she's a serious academic who also happens to be a delightful human being, which is why I loved it when she said one of her favorite books is about a serial killer, or more accurately, about the female victims of a serial killer. So a book that I've read recently that I really love is um, The Five by Hallie Rubenhold. She writes about the victims of Jack the Ripper, the five women who he killed. It sounds super macabre, but it's actually not because the way in which she writes about it is deliberately to counter the um, previous accounts which focus on either focus on the killer or they kind of glamorize and sexualize the murders and go into the grisly details whereas her objective is actually to reveal the lives of the women and to sort of humanize them you know treat them with a kind of respect that hasn't really been afforded to them in all the accounts you know, in the last 150 years. So it's really, really interesting. She uses archival material to kind of reconstruct their lives, but also information about the lives of women um, in Victorian Britain. 
it's really compassionate, really, really fascinating account of everyday life for women, you know, on, on the brink of poverty in the Victorian period. So, yeah, I, I recommend that. Joanne Beard has been called a writer's writer, but to my mind, that's too limiting. I say she's a reader's writer. Her essays are so, so good. I came across her New Yorker piece, The Fourth State of Matter, many years ago, and I still think it's the best essay I've ever read. So I couldn't wait to hear what she'd have to say about a book she loves and why she loves it. One of my favorite books is called You Are Here by Wesley Gibson. Where he is, and you are here, is New York City in the 90s, in a rented room in an Upper East Side apartment owned by a man who's very ill, but in denial about what ails him. It's a memoir of compassion written by a droll, uncertain, self-aware guy from Richmond, Virginia. And it's the story of friendships, both that of him and his new friend John, and that of him and his old friend, Joanne. To read Wesley was to love him. Talking with author Tochi Onyabuchi is pure joy. Even when you're talking with him about serious themes in his unforgettable dystopian novel, Goliath, he's got an energy or maybe a life force that's irresistible. I challenge you to not get excited again about the classic novel that he says is his all-time favorite book. My favorite book of all time all time. Number one is The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. I came across that book in high school. And one of the reasons why that book is so meaningful to me is that, you know, at the time in high school, the vast majority of the Black authors that we read, and almost exclusively, were writing about basically the difficulties of being Black in America. So we would read Invisible Man, we would read Native Son, Their Eyes Were Watching God, all of which are incredibly important books and necessary entries in the American canon. But at the time, as a high schooler, you know, who was coming up in science fiction and fantasy, I wanted to read stuff with a little bit more swashbuckling in it. <laughs> and so, so I came across The Count of Monte Cristo and... It was everything that I wanted in the story. There was buried treasure. There was secret identities. There was this massive revenge plot. It was incredible. And then, you know, my junior winter term, I did study abroad in France. And I and my roommate at the time, we discovered that the estate of Alexandre Dumas, basically Monte Cristo, was only a little ways outside of Paris. Mm. And so we just went one afternoon to his place and we were looking around and I was seeing on the walls these old photos of this guy who was very, very obviously black. Mm -hmm. And I thought at the time, oh, this must have been like his manservant or something like that. Mm -hmm. I was reading the captions and I was like, wait a second, that's him. That's <laughs> That's Alexandre Dumas. I uh, up until my junior year of high school, I did not know that Alexandre Dumas was black. <laughs> and so for me, that was one of the most validating episodes in my life as a writer because all of a sudden here was this guy who looked like me who was writing the types of stories that I wanted to write 
And it was almost more validating than all the praise that I'd gotten from my English teachers because I knew I was a good writer, at least by their rubrics. But in terms of being able to write the things that I wanted to write, like that was one of the most powerful um, things for me. And also, I just I love revenge epics. And to me, The Count of Monte Cristo is the blueprint. Anne Marks did something incredible. After a decades-long career as an executive in corporate America, she took a giant leap and became the author of a fascinating biography of photographer Vivian Meyer, a woman whose life path was as unexpected as Anne's. I loved hearing her recommend a book that she fell in love with during the course of that intriguing project. I read a book at the very beginning of this process with Vivian that has become basically my favorite book. And it's Susan Sontag's On Photography. You don't have to be a big fan of photography. You don't have to be into fine art photography to love this book. This woman is so brilliant. And the way she talks about the role of photography in all of our lives is just so interesting. And the whole time you read about it, you're just nodding your heads because there's so many layers to it. You know, she talks about how photographs, you know, allow us to possess part of the world. It allows us to, you know, own and appropriate things that happen, which is what Vivian was really doing. And that even though people think photographs are authoritative and a reflection of reality, they aren't necessarily because you can crop them and retouch them and arrange them and they can, um, appear at certain points of time and things can be outside the frame. And this was so instructive to me as I was looking at Vivian's photographs, because there's things that happen that at a point in time where like, for instance, a mother and a daughter look like they're so happy and it's this gold moment. And then I know now that by the time this little girl became an adult, her mother was a drug addict and she never saw her mother again. And it just really makes you think about photography and what it's telling you and its role in, in history and in your lives. It's fantastic. Marcus Ito is the author of the cult classic, How I Paid for College, a novel of sex, theft, friendship, and musical theater. He's also a Helen Hayes Award winner and Broadway book writer. And, full disclosure, Mark is one of my best friends from high school. So I've read the book he loves at his recommendation, and I agree. It's wonderful. A book that haunts me still, years after having read it, is Julia Otsuka's The Buddha in the Attic. It concerns the real-life situation of Japanese picture brides. These are women who were brought over from Japan in the first half of the 20th century to marry and with only a picture of their intended husbands, and often not an accurate picture at all. That story in of itself is worthy of your attention, but what's extraordinary about the book, additionally, is that Osuka writes it in first-person plural. We are from the country. We are from the city. It's so arresting, this technique. You'd think it would be confusing, but it's not. From it emerges a mosaic of various different perspectives and yet always getting you a, a sense of the collective experience as well. I feel like in this particular time when we are deconstructing the binary between he and she and examining pronouns, when so many of our problems derive from the sense of them and us, this is a book that we all really need to read.
Casey Sepp has a very special place in our hearts for two reasons. One, she's an incredible writer, the kind of writer where you want to read everything she writes, no matter what it is. And two, her biography of Harper Lee, Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee, was the inspiration for this podcast. Back in the fall of 2019, Eve and I were trying to decide what kind of podcast to do together. Eve said, what if we did a podcast about what Harper Lee did all day in the 50 years after she wrote Mockingbird? I've always been dying to know, and I've been reading this great book. And the rest is history. Yes. Although we did decide to broaden the scope of the podcast a bit. Yeah, just a little. Here's Casey. It probably won't surprise anyone who's read Furious Hours to learn that I really do love Southern literature. One of my favorite books is one that nobody reads anymore. I actually just finished writing an essay about why I love this guy, Harry Cruz, and in particular, a book that he wrote kind of midway through his career, a, a memoir of sorts. It's called A Childhood, The Biography of a Place. And I think it's a kind of how-to, like how to cook possum, how to clean a rooster's craw, how to get rid of screw worms, make moonshine, trap birds, kind of anything and everything that you, you would need to do in rural Georgia, which is where he grew up. And the book's about the first couple of years of his life really narrowly just those early years. And I think it's truly one of the most beautiful memoirs by an American. And, you know, on top of that, on top of telling you who he is and where he came from, it's all about how he became a writer and, you know, why anyone becomes anything, how we make use of history, our own and national history, and just in general, what the past has to do with the future. So I really just absolutely adore Harry Cruz's A Childhood, The Biography of a Place. We both adored Katherine Schultz's new memoir, Lost and Found, and we also adored our conversation with her, which ranged from tales of her remarkable father to the meaning and complexity of the word and and its symbol, the ampersand, and what might actually be the meaning of life. Listeners, aren't you dying to know which book Katherine loves and why? Hi, this is Katherine Schultz. I'm the author of Lost and Found. Uh, that book is partly a love story. And so I want to recommend a very strange and beautiful one and a book that I think is uh, much underappreciated. It's C.E. Morgan's All the Living, a really gorgeous, slim little novel that dates back to 2009. It's about um, two characters and, and really only two characters, a young woman named Aloma and her boyfriend, Oren. Uh, Aloma is a a would-be pianist who was orphaned very young and raised in a settlement school and has very little going on in her life until she meets Oren and falls in love. Uh, but then, tragically, his mother and brother are killed in a car accident just before the book begins. And, and so, as readers, we meet them when they are just trying to bind their lives together in, in the face of a lot of... Um, just loss and, and sorrow. And the book is just beautifully quiet and contained. It takes place in a valley overshadowed by a mountain and that sense of narrowness and a, a kind of early falling darkness haunts the whole thing. And yet somehow it's just more beautiful than I can say, partly because C.E. Morgan is incredibly emotionally astute and partly because her prose is just absolutely lovely and, and bizarre and spoke as if she wrote the whole thing in, in a dialect of a place that only she had ever lived. Uh, so that's C.E. Morgan's All the Living. It's absolutely beautiful. I can't recommend it enough. Tom Lynn is something of a wonderkind. 
He wrote his debut novel, The Thousand Crimes of Ming Su, right out of college, and it won him the Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Fiction. Marlon James said Ming Su, quote, saves the American Western by blowing it to bits, which is one reason it's so interesting that one of Tom's all-time favorite books is one of America's greatest classics. One of my favorite books is Moby Dick by Herman Melville. It's one of the most expansive stories I've ever encountered. Melville's capacity for time and pacing is totally unmatched, and I think his prose has a way of staying with you long after you turn the last page. In my opinion, I think Moby Dick should be read unabridged. Uh, all the whaling parts are absolutely crucial to generating the atmosphere of the book, and you can't just omit those without disrupting the feeling. Um, but I also think that Moby Dick should be read alongside Eric J. Dolan's Leviathan, which is a fantastic account of the history of whaling in America, that also provides significant context and framing for uh, Ishmael's voyage aboard the Pequod. Nicole Lowry has my dream life. His family started the Argosy Bookstore, which is one of the best bookstores on the planet. And they also started Swan Auction Galleries, where Nico is currently the president and principal auctioneer. He's also got a dream voice from his years as a DJ in Prague. Seriously, I could listen to him read his grocery list, but way better to listen to him talk about two of his favorite books. Greetings, Book Dreams people, and congratulations on reaching your 100th episode. You've asked me to tell you about one of my favorite books. The first I'd like to mention, because I couldn't just pick one favorite, uh, Tom Robbins' A Still Life with a Woodpecker, which uh, is a scintillating and rebellious adolescent manifesto presented with the finest wordsmithery, teeming with literary allusions and linguistic gyrations, it made it irresistible to a teenager, that was me, who fancied himself somewhat of a rebellious outsider with an intellectual streak. But uh, in rereading it years later, I found that my impressions as to the depths of its meaning and significance were absolutely overrated and clearly developed through my own undeveloped psyche at the time. But such an important book in my youth uh, that I had to mention it. And uh, the second and final book that I'll talk about, I was going to talk about three, but I will self-edit here, is actually a short story written by Stefan Zweig in 1925 called The Invisible Collection. And it's a story from the uh, years of Germany during the Great Inflation before the Second World War. And an art dealer is going to see an old client of his, a collector of rare prints. Um, <clears throat> and the art dealer is going to try and buy some prints and to try and make some money to support himself. And, well, to make a long story short, it turns out that when he arrives in this little German village and he meets this great old collector who has the most astounding collection of, of old master prints, that because of the runaway inflation in Germany, uh, his family has begun selling them out from under him, but the collector is blind, so he's unaware of the fact that they've replaced his priceless prints with either reproductions or even blank pieces of paper. And the story is about the, the subterfuge, the, the loving and kind dance between the art dealer uh, and the blind collector. And the family has spoken to the art collector and said, please don't let on to our father uh, and our husband that, that we have done this. We, we did it to support ourselves. It was a matter of necessity. And the dealer sitting there looking at blank pieces of paper with the blind collector waxing rhapsodic about the beautiful Rembrandt and Dürer etchings and prints it's an extraordinary story, one that speaks to me professionally, uh, one that is written stylistically, fabulously by Stefan Zweig, one of the great short story writers of all times, and really one of my most favorite books. 
It was such an absolute delight to get to know Lori Frankel, the New York Times bestselling, award-winning author of four novels, including most recently the book One, Two, Three. Long after our interview with Lori, I kept unknowingly adding her to our Book Dreams team emails, then realizing what I'd done, then having to reach out to her again and again to apologize. It was like my subconscious was saying, you fool, don't let her get away. I'm so glad we took this opportunity to ask about a book she loves, because there is nothing better than hearing someone I like and admire chatting about a favorite book. Hi, this is Laurie Frankel for the lovely and amazing Book Dreams podcast, answering the question, what's one of your favorite books and why do you love it? Which is such a good, simple question, but it's so hard to choose. But I'm going to go with The Power by Naomi Alderman, which also asks a simple question. What if women had the power to shoot electricity from their fingertips and then answers it for 400 glorious pages? Like all books I love, um, this one has interesting characters and interesting relationships. Like all books I love, The Power is beautifully written and tightly woven. But why it's one of my favorites is because it takes this really simple, really compelling premise and plays it all the way out. It's not just a conceit. It's not just a, a jumping off point. It actually explores, fully explores how the world would change if this were true. I also found this book to be really empowering, a pun Alderman absolutely intends, and one of those books that made me cry and cry, not because it was sad, but just because it was so, so good. All the stars, all the stars to Naomi Alderman for this one. Highly, totally, enthusiastically recommended. The power. I loved it. Because of Rosemary Moscow and her pocket guide to pigeon watching, Julie and I now take tremendous joy from that humble, ubiquitous, and, as Rosemary taught us, monumentally misunderstood bird. We suspected Rosemary's recommendation would have a slightly different focus than others, and a charming one. And we were right. One of my favorite books recently is Children of Time by Adrian Tchaikovsky. It's a science fiction book that's got a lot of speculative evolution. So imagining the development of a sentient species that is not at all human and seems very strange to us and how we interact with them and um, what happens when that species and humanity kind of have to negotiate their space in the universe. It's really, really interesting. It's especially fun if you like invertebrates and I'm not going to spoil why but it's got all kinds of cool critter stuff amazing space stuff and I just had a really good time reading it. Christina Baker Klein is the number one New York Times best-selling author of Orphan Train and many other novels including most recently The Exiles. When we spoke with her we were struck by her clarity and thoughtfulness and the connection she felt to other writers. All of this comes through as she talks about a book she loved. The Hours is one of my all-time favorite novels, and it contributed to a breakthrough in my own writing. When I read it in a headlong rush, and then again, slowly, I was writing a novel called Orphan Train. In the mornings when I sat down to write, I'd open The Hours at random and read a few paragraphs, finding inspiration in the clear and lucid prose. I marveled at how Michael Cunningham created two equally compelling perspectives, which I was also trying to do how quickly and fluidly the stories move forward, together and apart, how the book is epic in scope and yet intimate. There's no question in my mind that my own novel is better as a result of my obsession with the hours. It will always have a place on my short shelf of favorite books. 
Michelle Bowdler wrote a fiercely intelligent, deeply personal, and immensely consequential memoir, Is Rape a Crime?, which was longlisted for the National Book Award, among many other honors. Hearing her talk about why she loves the two books she chose makes me want to return to these wonderful classics. One of my all-time favorite books is The Heart is a Lonely Hunter by Carson McCullers. Part of what I love about it is how simple and yet how rich the sentences are, and also the way that the characters are so flawed and human. You really get a sense of what they feel, what they care about, and the things that they struggle with, but it's with a really light touch. And I think about those characters, John Singer and Antonopoulos still, and feel like they are somehow old friends. If you were to ask me to pick a nonfiction book, I would pick Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own. It's a book that, at the time it was written, really made such a compelling case for the challenges that women had to actually have the space and time to write. And even so many years later, it still really makes a compelling case for the privilege of what is sometimes needed to be able to create an artistic life and how hard it is to find space and time when you don't have money or a room of one's own. And I worry so much about the artists that we haven't had a chance to meet because of that. What a treat it was to speak with author Trisha Elam Walker. We could not stop gushing about her picture book, Nana Akua Goes to School. We loved reconnecting with her and getting to hear about and share with you a book that she loves. The book I'll talk about today is something I read early in the pandemic. It was hard for me to write and to read then because I was very concerned and frankly frightened. I lost people during that time, so it was tough for many reasons. A lot of the books I tried to read couldn't keep my mind from wandering back to my anxious state. That is, except for Girl, Woman, Other by Bernadine Evaristo. The first woman of African descent to do so, she won the Booker Prize for this astonishing work. As well she should have, so it was a shame it had to be shared with another writer. First time for that as well. But that's another story. This book breaks all the writing rules as we know them. I love that about it. There are a zillion characters who all have different voices, as well as compelling interior and exterior lives. Yet, we care about all of them, and I couldn't stop reading it. It's also a very brave book because Evaristo is saying that women of color are complicated and diverse and amazing and essentially rule the world. She touches on so many sizzling hot issues like race, gender identity, age, income, education, sex, drugs, children, love, family, dysfunction, mental health, and that's for starters. I could go on. Whew. She does not beat you over the head, though. You want to hang out with these women and create text threads with them after. As a writer, I love books that teach me more about writing, and this one certainly did. It's also a long book, but I was not ready for it to end. 
I felt a part of a new community and I wanted to stay with them for much longer, meaning I'll have to read it again. Megan Rosenblum wrote one of the most fascinating and controversial books we've covered on the podcast, Dark Archives, an investigation into books bound in human skin. What a memorable episode that was. And also, you may be interested to know, one of our most popular. Megan recommends a book I've always wanted to read but never been brave enough to try. But I think her quelling may have given me the courage I need. My favorite book, uh, which may sound like I'm trying to sound smart, but it really is my favorite book, so I'm sorry that it's kind of a cliche or whatever you want to call it, is honestly James Joyce's Ulysses. Uh, I love that it contains so much that who you are uh, impacts what you get out of it. And so it's really fun to read in the group. It's really fun to talk to people about because everyone brings their own expertise and experience to the experience of the book. I love books that are a mix of high and low culture and Ulysses definitely has those elements to it where there are some elements that are very erudite and you need to be very well educated to understand. And there is also a lot of body uh, shenanigans going on as well. And it, the prose is very musical and it's really an amazing book. It was riveting to get to speak with Brian Christie, an investigative reporter, lifelong adventurer, and author of the spy thriller In the Company of Killers. Brian has devoted decades to combating corruption. His investigations have led to police raids on Vatican City and the closing of China's ivory market, just for starters. It's thrilling even just to think about his experiences, and it's no surprise that a book he loves is a powerful story involving injustice. One of my favorite books is Native Son by Richard Wright. It, for me, is an extraordinarily well-crafted story of fury and what it must feel like to be the oppressed and kidnapped by the society in which you live. And I, as a writer, am trying to find those moments um, of injustice in our world and Wright's work, which captured so well his view of what things uh, are like in this country, continues to move me forward. Our next two guests, Hillary Jordan and Cheryl Lulian Tan, are the masterminds behind a very fun book, particularly welcome in these trying times. It's called Anonymous Sex. They invited a slew of award-winning authors to write an erotic short story. Then they published the collection in one steamy anthology with the authors listed alphabetically at the beginning of the book, but none of the stories attributed, so nobody knows who wrote what. One look at that list of authors tells you that Cheryl and Hillary have excellent taste in literature. That's evident too, as they talk about one of their favorite books, We've got Hillary first, then Cheryl. I'm going to go with Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishiguro. I think he does such an incredible job in all of his books, really, of 
writing a little snow globe, right? A, a small situation, but that reflects a much larger world and stuff that's happening in that world. But Never Let Me Go is my favorite book. It's about this, you know, basically people are being cloned in order to provide body parts for wealthy people. And so you know that this is all happening and you can imagine the larger world outside that would have created this. But the story is so focused on the particular experiences of those characters. I, I don't know. I just think he's a magician and I love um, that story. The book that I love, I've really loved for the last 10 years is The White Tiger by Aravindadiga. What I love about it is he writes about modern India with such humor. It's so subversive with such voice and it just illuminates everything, the, the world intimately and also very broadly. And his characters are just wonderful people that you, on the one hand, hope to never encounter, but on the other hand, hope you do. The White Tiger is just really such a great book about a moment in a country that is changing rapidly and so vastly. Do you want to hear a gripping, surprising story about a pivotal moment in our nation's history told by a masterful storyteller? Please take a listen to our episode with Sally Roche Wagner, an expert on Matilda Jocelyn Gage, a suffragist you likely haven't heard of for nefarious reasons. Let's just say you'll never think of Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton the same way again. We're delighted to learn about a book that's inspired Sally and to get to share it with you. One of my favorite books is Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Kimmerer. She braids her indigenous traditions with her training as a biologist. And the result is the most lyrical, loving, and insightful book that I've ever read. You come away a different person having read this book. I consider it my mentor book. Someday, I want to write a book that barely approaches this. That would be the best I could do. And happy anniversary to you. A hundred episodes. Who knew? Congratulations. It's fitting, we think, to end with two recommendations of books for kids, since we're both children's book authors. The first comes from Brahm, who's created a string of award-winning horror novels that he both wrote and gorgeously illustrated. Unsurprisingly, Brahm's recommendation is dystopian. And then we lighten the mood a little with a recommendation from Leonard Marcus, one of the world's preeminent authorities on children's books and the people who create them. First, I'd like to say thanks to Book Dreams for inviting me to talk about my favorite novel. Very hard to pick a favorite novel. Uh, for me, it changes all the time. But for now, I think it would be a tie between The Lord of the Flies by William Golding and A Clockwork Orange by Anthony Burgess. Hard to say exactly why I'm so drawn to them. I think partly it's because I read both of these in my teens and they made a huge impact on my young, impressionable mind. Uh, partly that they both deal with the breaking down of society and showing the wild animals that lurk just below the surface in all of us. But mostly they're just damn good books. Hi, this is Leonard Marcus. The book I'd like to talk about is The Philharmonic Gets Dressed. It's a picture book by Carla Cuskin, illustrated by Mark Samant. 
published by Harper in 1982. What I love about this picture book is how unexpected it is. It's the story of a concert orchestra getting ready for its performance. You see all the musicians in their homes, pulling on their socks, putting on their tuxedos and black dresses, and heading out the door. Ordinarily, you'd expect the story to be the story of the concert itself, but the author and artist have realized that there's another story to tell in the way people get ready for things, the way they anticipate the work and other things that they have to do. It's very much like a child getting ready for school in the morning. So I think just about anyone at any age could identify with this really idiosyncratic and uh, wonderful take on um, the way people do things well. I recommend it. I can't think of a nicer note to end on. So that's it for our 100th episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thank you so much for listening today and every time you've tuned in in the last two years. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. (laughs) Happy book dreaming. (laughs) This happens every time, y'all. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Come listen to Book Dreams with Julianne.